If we haven't had a chance to meet, I'd love to meet you after the service. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary. Normally, my family is worshiping at the Boulder campus, but it's great to be with you in Thornton this morning. We are so excited about what's happening at the Thornton campus, and um, you have a great staff here. I think you know that, but Zach does such an outstanding job leading out here. We're thankful to have Justin and Dakota and Whitney and Angie and Brody and all of you too and the ways that God is working. And we're praying that this fall we would see a greater number of people who are at Calvary Bible Church and that they might come to join us for the series that we're in, which is all about Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. And it's good news for all people. It's the kind of news that our culture needs and that people need to hear about the great things that Jesus has done. I bet each of us in this room has an experience that we might remember where we've encountered someone who we would describe as having amazing faith, even in the midst of perhaps terrible circumstances. I know I've seen people who have exhibited just astonishing faith, even though they're living through a terminal diagnosis. I bet some of us know people whose faith is, is just amazing, even though they've lost so much. I've watched people who have lost resources, lost a job, lost a home, lost a spouse or a child. And I watched them walk through that deep sorrow and suffering and pain. And I think to myself, my goodness, how, how do you get out of bed in the morning, let alone have the kind of faith that is so strong and steadfast? and unchanging in the midst of it. They're the kind of people that you might think otherwise in those kinds of circumstances would lose their faith. But instead of losing their faith, their faith is something that you notice. That you say, gosh, I, I wish I had that kind of faith. If I was walking through what they are walking through, would I be able to have the kind of faith that they do. What is it about them? Today, as we continue our series in the Gospel of Luke, we're going to meet a person who had that kind of faith. That kind of faith that was described as amazing. In fact, this person's faith was so extraordinary, so unique, so different, that they are the only person in the Bible who our author Luke actually says, when Jesus saw this person's faith, he marveled at it. Jesus found this person's faith amazing when he saw it. So if you have your Bible with you, would you open it with me to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, as we continue, good news for all people. I'm thankful that Zach asked me to preach this morning. I know that Zach loves to like go back to the previous chapter that wasn't even assigned for the week and preach from that. But my commitment to you today is to try to stay in Luke chapter 7. So we're going to begin in verse 1. Luke 7, verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. This is Jesus. Okay, I guess to be fair, to give you a little context about what's happening, we may have to talk a little bit about chapter 6. After he had finished 
all of the sayings in the hearing of the people. So what most of Luke chapter 6 talks about is the Sermon on the Mount, the famous sermon that Jesus preached. In Luke, it's only a portion of of, uh, one chapter, but Matthew gives the Sermon on the Mount three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And so that's what has just finished, is the Sermon on the Mount. And in both accounts, both in Matthew and in Luke, the story that we're going to read today is what happens immediately following the Sermon on the Mount. And it occurs in this city named Capernaum, which is on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. It's right next to where we historically understand the Sermon on the Mount um, to have been preached. So it's within walking distance. And Capernaum was kind of the earthly base of Jesus's ministry. It overlooks the Sea of Galilee. So he's there. And then it says, now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. A centurion was a military official who worked for the Roman Empire. You can tell by his name how many people reported to him, about a hundred. You probably know that in the first century, um, what is now known as the nation of Israel, the, the state of Israel, was occupied at that time by Rome. And in order to enforce their authority, they stationed military guards throughout the country. And so this centurion was in Capernaum, and he had hundreds of people who were there with him. And part of his job was to enforce the laws of Rome in a military fashion. But this centurion, our text says, has a servant who was sick and at the point of death. And Luke says this servant was highly valued by him. Matthew tells us that the centurion loved his servant, and he was sick at the point of death. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking Jesus to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. He's the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this. And he does it. When Jesus heard these things, here it is, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word and for our chance to gather together in your name to hear from it. I pray as we read it today that you, Lord Jesus, would strengthen our faith, that we would be reminded of who you are and what you've done and why we can place our faith in you. We bless you, Jesus, and pray all this in your name. Amen. So Jesus marveled at the faith of the centurion. Another way we could translate that is to simply say that Jesus was amazed by his faith. The only time a person is described in the Bible by Jesus as having amazing faith. So what made the centurion's faith so remarkable, so distinct, 
so different from everybody else in Israel that Jesus had encountered that he would marvel at it. I know when I encounter people with that kind of faith, I wish my faith was more like theirs. Stronger, deeper, more confident, more resolute. But here's the thing about true faith. True faith doesn't depend upon us. True faith depends upon who our faith is in. This week, as I've been thinking about the people I've known with amazing faith, what I've realized as I've thought about them is that as they're going through these incredibly difficult circumstances in their life, they don't ever tell me about them. They don't tell me about what they've done, about how strong they are, about how courageous they are, about how often they go to church, about how much they read their Bible, about all the things they've done. You know what they tell me about? And probably your experience too, they tell me about Jesus, how good he is, how kind he's been to them how faithful he is in the midst of whatever they're going through or what they've walked through. Jesus is faithful to them. And that's what I hear from them. And that's what I see most of all in them is not that they in and of themselves have a deep faith, but that their faith is rooted in Jesus. The strength of our faith doesn't depend on us. It depends on who our faith is in. So faith is a word that gets thrown around a lot today, and it's kind of taken on different meanings in our culture. One common way that faith is thought of is that it's like a set of religious practices, because you can describe someone who is a Christian as a person of faith. You can describe someone who is a Muslim as a person of faith, a Jew, a Hindu person. All of those people in our culture are referred to as people of faith. And in that definition of faith, I think in the world's idea of what faith is, stronger faith requires more work on our part, right? That's what world religions think of when they think of faith. And it's the way that many religious leaders of Jesus' day, too, thought about faith. Look at what they said to Jesus when they asked him to help the centurion in verse 4. It says, when they came to Jesus... They, this is the elders of the Jews, the religious leaders in Capernaum, they come to Jesus and they plead with him earnestly saying, the centurion is worthy to have you do this for him, Jesus. He is worthy. Look at everything that he's done. He loves our nation. He loves the people of God. He built us our synagogue. Here's the list of qualifications that make this man worthy of Jesus doing something for him. And when we look at faith as simply a list of religious practices, we can be confused and think that it's all about us to have great faith. And that's what the leaders of the day in the religious world thought. This man's worthy because he's done the following things. He loves our country. He's built our synagogue. He is worthy. That's how the world approaches the idea of faith. I earn it. I deserve it. But notice what the centurion says. In verse 6, he says, don't trouble yourself, Jesus. I am not worthy. I'm not worthy, Jesus, to even have you come into my home. 
In the eyes of the centurion, it doesn't matter what he's done. He hasn't earned anything. He deserves nothing. When he sees Jesus for who he is, he says, I'm not worthy, Jesus. You shouldn't even come to my house. Amazing faith doesn't depend on us. It depends on who our faith is in. Faith, true faith, always has an object. And in the Bible, that object is unquestionably the Son of God, Jesus. It's not about ourselves, not what we've done, but it's about who Jesus is and what he has done. That's faith. I think also when we think about the biblical definition of faith, it's helpful to realize there are sort of two components of faith. One is belief, and the other is trust. Belief is like the first building block of faith. So there's a certain set of things that we believe to be true. When we think of Jesus, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We believe that he has existed eternally, that he left heaven and came to earth. We believe Jesus healed. We believe Jesus performed all sorts of miracles during his earthly ministry. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. We believe Jesus then returned to heaven and one day will return to the earth in glory. But faith is more than just belief. It has to go deeper. Not only is there a component of faith that is based on belief, but also trust. In order to have true faith in the way the Bible describes it, we must also have trust and trust in Jesus. So we trust in Jesus for salvation. We even trust Jesus today to heal us, to heal our friends and family. We trust in Jesus to answer prayer. We just trust in Jesus to give us what we need to provide for our daily bread to help us, to lead us and guide us. We trust Jesus on a daily basis to forgive us of our sins. A common illustration of faith, one that you've probably seen, has to do with a chair. So I look at this chair, and I can believe certain things about it. It looks stable, right? Steady. It has four legs. It looks comfortable. I can believe all of that about this chair, but until I walk up and sit down in it, I haven't yet put my trust in this, this very comfortable chair. If I was sitting in this listening to me, I might doze off a little bit. <laughs> but I exercised faith when I took what I believed about this chair and then trusted in it and sat down in it and trusted it not to break. I put my faith in my car this morning. There were certain things I believed about it. I believed it had enough gasoline in the engine to get me here to Thornton this morning. I believed that the lug nuts on the wheel were tight enough that they wouldn't fall off as I was traveling at a high rate of speed here. I believed in the structural integrity of the steel frame of my car that it wouldn't collapse as I was driving. But it wasn't until I got in, put on my seatbelt, turned on the car, and drove here that I trusted in my car's ability to be able to get me here. And so too with Jesus. It's not enough that we believe certain facts about him that are true and that we absolutely unquestionably believe. It is only when we place our trust in him for salvation for healing, for forgiveness of sins, that we rely on him and we truly 
exercise faith in Jesus. But Jesus is the object of our faith. He is the one who is deserving of it. So what was it about Jesus that made him a credible place for the centurion to place his faith? What made Jesus so unique that the centurion would say, I can trust this man? I want to show you two things from our text today that make Jesus, I think, deserving of our faith. First, Jesus has all authority. And second, Jesus has all ability. Let's look first at the authority of Jesus. Look at verse 8 of Luke chapter 7. The centurion says to Jesus, For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, Jesus, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. The centurion saw that Jesus had all authority. Now, a centurion in the first century would have been an expert in authority. He's a military man. People in the military understand maybe more than anybody else authority, right? They know what the chain of command is. And when you think about the chain of command for the centurion, who was at the top of his organizational chart in the Roman Empire? Caesar. Caesar was like a god to the Romans. That man was unquestionably the most powerful man on the earth. If you want to talk about a person in the world in the first century who had authority unlike anybody else, it was Caesar, and the centurion worked for him. He knows what authority is. Not only does he know what it is to have someone above him who has authority, but the centurion had hundreds of people who worked for him. So he exercised his own authority. And he says to Jesus, I know what it's like to say to someone, go, and they go. Come, and they come. When an order came down through the chain of command and the centurion executed that order, people listened. He knew what authority was. He understood it. But what's remarkable here is that even though the centurion works for the most powerful man on the planet, he recognizes Jesus as having a different kind of authority altogether. This man works for Caesar, and he looks to Jesus and says, Jesus, you have authority that's unlike any other authority I have ever seen. He has this personal problem in his life. His servant, who he loved, is dying. And the centurion had means. He had resources. We know he's a wealthy man. He built a synagogue for the people of Capernaum. That would have been very expensive. He had hundreds of people who worked for him. So he had all these people he could command at his word to do things. He works for Caesar. He could have appealed to Caesar to help in his need. He was well thought of in his community. The elders come to Jesus and say, this man's worthy of doing this. He had probably exhausted all resources as he tried to get his servant who he loved healed. And it comes to this, that there's nobody else in the world that he thinks has the authority to heal his servant but Jesus himself. Because he's looked at all the options. And he says, Jesus, there is nobody else like you. This man knew how to solve problems, how to help people. 
But he was up against a problem that he couldn't solve on his own. And that's the place that all true people of faith get to. I've got nothing, Jesus. I have no other option but you to turn to. I can't do this on my own. Only you, Jesus. Only you, Jesus, can help me with this. That kind of dependence on the authority of Jesus is a mark of faith. The centurion wasn't the only one who recognized the authority of Jesus in the first century. In Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount in his three chapters, at the conclusion of it, this is what he said the crowds, the, the way the crowds reacted to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. It says, when, Je- when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. When Jesus spoke, people said, this man speaks like nobody else. He speaks with a kind of authority that I've never heard anybody else speak with. He talks about things that that no one else has the authority to speak about. He says things about himself that declares his authority above all things. It's astonishing to hear him speak. He has unbelievable authority. When Jesus speaks, God speaks. He speaks with the authority of God. And it wasn't just his teaching ministry where Jesus demonstrated to people that he had all authority. It tells us in our text that the centurion had heard about Jesus. What had he heard? He probably had heard about his healing ministry. Think about the many people that Jesus healed. That word had gotten to the centurion about Jesus and his ability to heal people from disease. He did it regularly. Jesus also was able to heal people from demonic possession. So Jesus declares his authority by healing people over disease, over demons, by casting them out and having authority over them. If you know some of the stories of when Jesus casts a demon out of a person, the demons look to Jesus as a person with authority, and they listen to his every command. Jesus also demonstrates his authority over disaster. He's on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. A giant storm comes. The Wind comes, the waves are coming, the rain is enormous, extraordinary. Jesus is asleep on the boat. They wake him up, they're terrified, and at his word, it's dead silent. Perfect weather conditions. Because Jesus has the authority over disaster. And what do his disciples say? Who is this man that even the wind and the seas obey him? Jesus has all authority. Jesus even demonstrates his authority over death. Think about the people that he raised from the dead, Lazarus, the widow's son, the little girl. Jesus has an authority that is unlike anybody else in the world. Do you believe in the authority of Jesus? Do you look to him as your king, as the one who has all authority over all these things and over your life too? Is he the one that you look to and say, Jesus, help me, lead me, guide me. I submit to you. I listen to you. It's my delight to obey you, Jesus, because you have authority over my life and I surrender my desires, my wants, everything to you because you, Jesus, are the only one who has all authority. Not only does Jesus have authority over disease and death, 
and demons and disaster. But Jesus demonstrates his authority to us over all of these things so that we would know that Jesus and Jesus alone has authority over salvation. Here's what he said right before the Great Commission, before he returned to heaven after he had risen from the dead. He gathers his disciples together and he came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he sends them. He says, go therefore into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus Christ. And he calls us, his followers, to go into all the world and find followers of Jesus who will submit their life to his great authority. And teach them, he says, to obey all that I have commanded. To look to him as their authority. And he is with us. What an encouragement it is for those of us who have friends and family that we're praying for that they might be saved. To remember that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. And he is the one who saves. We can trust in him for our own salvation. We can ask him to save those that we love and all authority has been given to him to do so. Jesus has an authority like nobody else. And he also has ability like no one else. Look at verse 7 of Luke 7. After the elders say to Jesus, he's worthy, go do this for him. The centurion says, I did not presume to come to you, Jesus, but say the word and let my servant be healed. At your word, Jesus, I trust my servant will be healed. That's all you have to do is just say the word. That's all it takes for Jesus to heal is a word because he has all the power, all ability to heal. And the centurion recognized Jesus as the one who had the ability to meet this need that he had. He was the one he could go to and ask for help. Just say the word, Jesus, and let my servant be healed. He trusted that Jesus could do it, and he trusted even more so that Jesus would do it. I want you to notice what makes this healing miracle of Jesus kind of unique as compared to other ones. Most of the healing miracles we think of about Jesus, Jesus is physically present with the person who he heals, right? He's in the room with the little girl that he raises from the dead. The woman who comes by and touches his clothing, Jesus, it says, sensed that power had gone out of him. He is physically present with many of the people who he healed, but not in this case. He never goes to the centurion's home. He doesn't even meet the servant, nor does it even seem, according to our text, that he even meets the centurion. Jesus is at a distance from the person who actually has the need to be healed, and what happens? It tells us in verse 11, or verse 10, when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So the servant was healed, and Jesus was never in his presence. There's no indication that Jesus even knows who the servant is. The centurion doesn't identify him. No indication that Jesus ever met this man. What do you see here? You see that Jesus is all-knowing, 
He knows who the, the servant is. Without meeting him, without being in his physical presence, he is distant from him, and yet he knows exactly who the centurion is talking about, and he's able to heal him. And he also is able to heal at a distance, which is such an encouragement for us today because Jesus is in heaven. He's not physically present with us, but we can still trust him to heal. We can still call on his name and trust that he is able, that he is capable, that he has the power to heal, even though he might not be in our physical presence. And I think sometimes we just wish he was right here with us, right? It'd make it easier. Oh, Jesus, if you were here, then you could heal the person. That's not required. Jesus doesn't have to be in the physical presence of a person to heal them, and this is evidence of that for us. I think there's also something in here for us, for those who intercede on behalf of another. Because the one who's asking for help, the centurion, isn't the one who needs to be healed. He's asking for his friend. Now, there are evidences of people who ask to be healed directly. Jesus heals them. But here's an example for us, for those of us who labor in prayer for our friends or family or other church members who need healing. And we can have confidence that Jesus listens to us even though we're not the one who needs to be healed. But our friend does. A family member does. And we can go to Jesus on behalf of that person in faith and Jesus will heal them. It's not the servant who has faith in the story. It's the centurion. Yet it's the servant who is healed. And so we can pray for people who might not even know Jesus to be healed, right? And Jesus is faithful. Jesus is able to heal. He has all power, all ability. He knows everything. And he delights to hear our prayers and to answer them. To listen to our needs. Jesus has all ability. I think it's also worth noting here about who the centurion is in the social context of that day. So the elders, the Jews at the time in this region, thought highly of him, right? They admired him. He loved the Jewish nation. He had built their synagogue. But most centurions, I don't think, were looked upon favorably by the Jews that they lived with. You can understand why. You're occupied by a foreign nation. I mean, just imagine for us, if the Canadians invaded, which is probably unlikely, they're a little too nice to invade us, but you can imagine some foreign power invading us and occupying our country. And everywhere you go, there's a member of the military from this foreign enemy who tells you what to do, who watches you, who arrests you if you don't pledge allegiance to Rome and to Caesar or to whoever it is. I don't think Americans would look kindly on a foreign power telling us what to do. And here are the people of God who have been granted by the sovereignty of the creator of everything, this is your land that I give to you, and a, a, a foreign enemy has occupied it and tells them what to do. I mean, that's an even deeper layer of resentment that they would have had. And the centurion was most likely a Gentile, not a Jew. He was part of the Roman Empire. This is one of the beginnings, I think, of the ministry to Gentiles that Jesus is demonstrating. That salvation isn't only for the Jews, but is for all people. This is good news for all people. The centurion, in other contexts where maybe they would have been less admired, might have been the last person that a Jewish person would have thought 
salvation would come to, or healing would come to, or an answer to prayer would come to, because of who they were. And yet, not only does Jesus heal across literal distance, but here he's, he's willing to heal a person across, across ethnic distance, across these social constructs that people of the day would have said, probably, in other circumstances, they're not worthy. And yet Jesus regularly heals people who weren't worthy, right? Think about all the disabled people who were just looked upon as outcasts that Jesus took the time to stop and to heal. Because Jesus brings good news for all people, not for a certain set of people, not for a certain category of people, not for people who have been born in a certain area or look a certain way or believe a certain thing, but Jesus brings good news for all people, and he's able to do that. Jesus has all ability. So if you're here this morning and you're feeling like you need more faith, how would you strengthen it? I would suggest when we feel like our faith is weak, let's look to Jesus, not ourselves. Amazing faith is found in an amazing Savior. And it's our privilege this morning to remember what Jesus accomplished for us as we celebrate communion together. And as we prepare our hearts to eat and drink together and remember the death of Jesus, let's remember that this meal is meant to nourish us, not so much physically, but spiritually. It's meant to be an experience that Jesus instituted that would strengthen our faith because we remember his death and what he accomplished for us that we never could. And so as we prepare to eat and drink together, Let's remember two things about Jesus. That Jesus is the only one who had the authority to lay his life down. Here's what he said in John chapter 10, verse 18. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Nobody takes my life from me. Jesus laid his life down freely for you. He's the only one who had the authority to do that. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a mistake that Jesus died. It was the purposeful plan of God that Jesus would exercise his authority and say, now I will go to the cross for my people where I will do what they can't do for themselves. I will lay my life down for them and then I will take it up again so that they might have confidence and faith that when they trust in me, I have the authority to raise them up to, to new life. Jesus is the only one who had the authority to lay his life down, and he is the only one who had the ability to defeat sin. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, it says this about Jesus, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's nobody else who could die for us. No one else who could pay the penalty of our sin other than Jesus Christ. He had the authority to lay his life down for you. And he had the ability to pay for your sin forever and ever by his single work on the cross. 
And so as we come together and eat and remember his death, let's remember that Jesus has the authority and ability for salvation. It's found in no one else. And if you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus for salvation, I would say today is the day. Today is the day to say, Jesus, I believed a bunch of things about you before today, but today I trust you because you laid your life down for me and you're able to save me. And I am not worthy, but I call on you for salvation, Jesus. Would you forgive me? And he is faithful and just to forgive you. And if you've asked Jesus to do that, you can join with us together in this beautiful meal of remembrance about the death of our Savior, Jesus. So I'm going to pray, and then we have these two stations that are available for you. And if you'd like to come up with your family, if you'd like to come up alone, however you'd like to come, you can come and take a cup and the bread, and you can eat and drink and give thanks to Jesus for what he has done for you. He loves you. Lord Jesus, we bless you for who you are and what you've done. We bless you for having all authority, Lord Jesus, all authority in heaven and earth. We bless you, God, for having all ability, all power. You are our king who chose to die for us, to lay his life down so that we might live. And as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we worship you, Jesus. We acknowledge you as king, we remember you as savior, and we turn to you again for forgiveness. So if any of us have any sin to confess to Jesus, we bring it to you now, Lord. We ask for your forgiveness, for your grace and your mercy to come to us again. And we have faith, Jesus, that you will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May this meal nourish us. May it strengthen our faith because of who our faith is found in, you and you alone, Lord Jesus. To you be the glory, we pray. Amen.